News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, recruitment is tough out there in all sorts of industries, but for the RCMP, it might have just gotten a little easier. Now, it used to be that to join the National Police Force, you had to join early, be trained along with all the other recruits, but a new agreement will potentially change all that. Joining us now is Brian Seve, president of the National Police Federation. Thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having us, Simi. How significant is this new agreement? I think it's something that we've been pursuing for about two years now. We realized it was an oversight um, from the Treasury Board and RCMP side in the collective agreement from 2021. So I think it is definitely, as you mentioned, recruitment, the labor market is tight uh, and this will help where you hope uh, for lateral experienced police officers to come into the RCMP. Okay, so what does that mean then? Lateral uh, experienced police officers? Uh, well, you know, uh, policing obviously is a, is a profession. Is uh, people don't go into a challenging or rewarding career lightly. Uh, and you know, one of the challenges we saw from the NPF when we did focus groups with new members who uh, had less than three years service, some of them were experienced police officers from the OPP or Toronto or Vancouver, for example, and they expressed challenges with a the time it took to go through the application stage. And also this particular MOA addresses the service they had with, I don't know, Toronto, for example, maybe 10 years with Toronto, was not recognized in the RCMP for accumulation of holidays. So what this MOA does is it eliminates that barrier. If you have 10 years with Toronto, you will be considered as having 10 years in the RCMP uh, for your holiday. uh, allotment per per year. Okay, that's interesting. Then, so it's almost like recognizing the seniority that mm-hmm. officers have, perhaps in a different force. One hundred percent. So you know they come in; uh, their seniority is recognized uh, for pay rates, uh, but the oversight was that seniority wasn't recognized for accumulation of holidays, and those vary. Obviously, they would have to start as a as a brand new member of the RCMP, uh, and that was a hindrance. Okay, that, so do you feel now this will attract perhaps officers from other police forces? Uh, the hope is that it will. I mean, obviously, we, you know, speaking with the RCMP and working with the RCMP collaboratively on this initiative, as well as amongst others to streamline recruiting, we know that there are hundreds uh, of experienced police officers who have expressed interest in coming over to the RCMP across the country, whether it's New Brunswick all the way to British Columbia. Uh, and hopefully this will attract more. Uh, so when will this come into effect? It is in effect. And actually, for those who have joined us um, already, it's retroactive to April 1st of this uh, 2022. What does it take to get something like that changed, Brian? Like you can make that change on paper, um, but is it difficult for officers to make that transition into the RCMP? uh, Well, I think one of the challenges we see is, you know, if you are a member of the Calgary Police Service, for example, chances are you have a, uh, you may have a spouse, you have a family, they have careers, they are going to schools. So you may not want to move to uh, Manitoba or Saskatchewan. So also as part of the discussions that we're having with the RCMP is, you know, do we look at an experienced police officer coming in that may want a pre-posting agreement? 
whereas they don't have to move from Alberta or they may be able to stay in the general area in and around Calgary, that will allow obviously their family unit to stay together and obviously be uh, more considerable. So it is a big career decision. Um, however, you know, we've seen a lot of interest from other police officers in different agencies that look to come over the RCMP. And, and we're really just trying to do our part to reduce those barriers. What is recruiting and retention like these days in the RCMP? Actually, it's getting better. Um, you know, I have to say, uh, po- the throughout the COVID pandemic, our uh, training academy at Depot was shut down, uh, just like most post-secondary learning institutions. Uh, and the applications continued to come in. Um, however, there have been some challenges getting those applications processed in a timely manner. But it is getting better now that Depot is back up to full capacity. We're seeing an influx of, I think it's close to 900 applicants per month. Um, and the processes that the RCMP with us have, have, have expedited have really shortened the time frame from application to engagement. So, so we're, we're, it's a really positive news story for 2023 and beyond. Now, to me, 900 applicants a month seems like a lot, but how many ends up, actually end up as, say, finished officers? Oh, yeah. No. So 900 applicants does not necessarily mean 900 cadets. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it, I, I am, I'm guessing that, you know, maybe 40% would actually make it to uh, graduation day if maybe about 35 to 40%. Right. So still a lot of work to be done here, but it sounds like um, things are, you know, a couple of years ago or even five years ago, you wouldn't have thought that the RCMP could make those kinds of changes. No. And I think this is the one of the cha- changes and one of the positive impacts where you actually have a bargaining agent uh, speaking on behalf of all the members. And, you know, you can read a lot of the submissions, a lot of the media and a lot of the stuff that we've done. It, resourcing has been a challenge for work-life balance, health, safety of our membership. So one of the priorities for us is to really work collaboratively. And I, I give credit to the commissioner for, for making it a priority uh, to streamline and expedite um, the ability to get more members in because that definitely impacts the morale, the well-being, the health and safety of our membership on the ground. Well, Brian, thanks uh, so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you for having us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. That's Brian Seve, president of the National Police Federation, talking about this new agreement that the RCMP has reached with the National Police Federation that says that if you are a police officer that has, let's say, 10 years' experience on a municipal police force or a city police force and you want to join the RCMP, that will be recognized, that experience will be, and it will be like you had 10 years with the RCMP. They feel like that will really help them recruit more officers. And as we've heard with all the battles over policing in this province recently, uh, recruiting officers is definitely tough for a lot of police forces out there right now. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I would say it's long overdue. Vancouver City Council has unanimously passed that plan to help revitalize Chinatown. It's a sort of a bunch of pilot projects that they're going to be doing that's going to focus on cleaning and sanitation, removing graffiti and supporting residents and businesses. But is this going to be enough for the businesses and the people who are already there? Well, one business owner says, well, maybe not, too. We're going to talk more about that now. Jordan Eng joins us now, chair of the Chinatown Business Improvement Association. Jordan, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. What are you hearing from businesses about this plan? 
Well, you know, this is a good news story for Chinatown and the downtown east side. It's, it's been a long, tough three to four years for us. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're hopeful that this is a move forward. I think this is a first step for us. Uh, you know, we're not going to take our foot off the gas. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it's going to restore, help us restore our, our luster and uh, appeal to Chinatown and, and, and bring people into, into the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, it's, um, we, it's been tough, but, uh, you know, we're, we're glad that uh, City Council has re- really embraced the neighborhood. So, You know, it's interesting. We've heard from places like Newtown Bakery. Now, Newtown Bakery has been there for, what, 40-plus years, and they're saying this might not be enough. Well, you know, I spoke at council yesterday, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is a first step. We need to. This is to help bring us to a new, uh, back to a base level that uh, we would expect in any other neighborhood in this in the city. Um, and uh, you know, next steps would be to to support uh, areas like placemaking to you know bring mural programs into Chinatown, sponsor cultural events, uh, lighting in Chinatown in the evening to make it. Uh, feel more inviting to families and seniors. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot lot more to, to come, and we're hoping that uh, with, when the city opens a, the office in, in Chinatown, the satellite office, they'll be front line with us, and, uh, you know, they'll see what's going on. And, um, uh, you know, we'll continue to get support from the council that they promised. Do you talk to, talk to the businesses about that and tell them, like, maybe you just need to hang in there a little while longer? I think so. I mean, uh, you know, we've come out, we've gone through this far already. Uh, you know, the, the, we started with the pandemic when things started getting uh, tough. Um, you know, some of the businesses didn't make it out the gate uh, right from the start of the pandemic. I mean, those that have, have made it have been uh, resilient. They've been able to, to pivot. And, uh, you know, we're just telling them to hang in, hang in there. I mean, you know, we're still a great neighborhood, uh, lots of great restaurants, some of the best restaurants in the city, bars, um, and we've got businesses, uh, gift shops that people have been, uh, uh, they kind of uh, recognize from the, the past, these new gift shops that uh, um, have really neat, uh, neat items and uh, that you don't see in other parts of the city, so. What kind of reaction are you getting from businesses, though? Like, because this whole Chinatown action plan has gotten a lot of attention, right? And so it's really out there, and people are talking about it. Is there a sense of optimism? There is. There is. It, you know, right from the, uh, the the election when the ABC Council came in, it was almost like a weight had been lifted off our shoulder. Uh, you know, the previous mayor didn't seem didn't recognize that there was a problem in the neighborhood uh, for for Chinatown, and uh, and that was the biggest. Uh, that was the biggest problem, and it, it, what we felt in Chinatown, we were really front line. It, and it what wasn't recognized until it became a mainstream issue was the uh, random attacks um, uh, and the graffiti and, and vandalism that was uh, starting to pop up in, all, all over the city. So, and I, I know people will probably look at this and go, "Yeah, but it's just like cleaning up of garbage and graffiti. How much of a difference is this actually going to make, Jordan?" Well, you know, like I said, it's the first step, and um, you know, uh, you know, we're looking forward to the next steps, including safety and security, as it relates to you know the mental health and uh, drug crisis, and the uh, uh, mayor's uh, support for 100 new police and uh, mental health nurses, um, and the premier's uh, support to uh, to strengthen um, what's happening out of the court, so we don't have repeat offenders. Uh, going in and out of uh, jail and being released after 24 hours. I mean, there needs to be a message of accountability uh, on that side as well. So, 
how it, soon it, do you it, think we could see a difference? Like you want people to come and visit Chinatown, obviously. You want them to be able to walk around, enjoy it, like what they see. How soon do you think that will happen for people? Well, you know, I, I think uh, it, it it started from uh, when the uh, when the mayor and council got in in October. You know, there's uh, there has been this optimism. Uh, you know, people are are starting to come down. Things are starting to look a little cleaner. Uh, we've got for the first time in I think about three or four years now the uh, Chinese New Year's parade, which we're hoping people will come down and, and revisit Chinatown. And uh, it's going to be a great weekend for. Uh, the year of the the, the the rabbit, so we're, we're we're optimistic. I love that. Yes, a great reason to come down there. Tell us about that event. When is that happening? Well, it's happening this Sunday, and uh, from eleven to one in in Chinatown. But come early because uh, uh, if the previous years are an in indicator, uh, we're going to have thousands of people, and uh, there's uh, events being held in the Chinese Cultural Center, uh, the the Dr. Sun Yat Sen Gardens the storytelling center. So, um, and the businesses will be all uh, looking to, to invite people into their shops, their restaurants and, uh, and enjoy the community. And, and, you know, we've heard in the past about um, uh, how things were and, and, and people's memories of the past, but, you know, we're, we're also trying to create new memories for uh, the young folks and the, and the people that are coming, uh, that have been, are coming to Chinatown for the first time. This is a good way to do that. Jordan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Is this the end? That after more than 40 years, could the iconic Vancouver Folk Music Festival actually be packing up those tents for good? No more Birkenstock 500? No more Folk Music Festival at Jericho in the summertime? Let's find out what happened here. Joining us now is Mark Zuberbuehler, who's the president of the Vancouver Folk Festival Board. Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, people are really wondering, like, is this really it? Well, uh, we did uh, mention in our release uh, the other day that we are having a meeting on um, February 1st uh, in order for the members to decide whether we should uh, dissolve the festival. Um, we have a number of reasons why we uh, came up with that recommendation, um, but that's sort of where we're at at this time. And so it's really up to the members to decide, but um, as a board, we felt this was the best step for us to take at this time. And why is that? Is it just no longer financially viable? Yeah, I, I think that would be a fair way of putting it. Um, it's uh, it's become uh, prohibitively expensive to put on these types of events in a post-COVID environment. And last year, our, even though we had a very successful uh, festival in terms of attendance, uh, we raised our ticket prices. We cut uh, a number of events to keep our costs down somewhat. Uh, even though we took those steps, uh, our costs still went up quite dramatically. So there's become a real gap between um, the term of the expenses of an event of this nature plus the anticipated funds that we feel that we could raise in order to support it. Um, so it's um, we just don't really have the funds now to put a festival on for this upcoming year. And also, we don't see a way forward in terms of a sustainable uh, fashion uh, to keep the festival going. What, what would it take, Mark? Would it take a, a deep-pocketed sponsor to come forward? Would that help? I think uh, yes, uh, it would take that, um, but they would have to. It would have to be something on an annual basis. Um, there, uh, one of the challenges with uh, the Vancouver Folk Music Festival is its location. In the sense, that even though it's a beautiful location, there are some significant costs in putting on an event there every summer because there's really no infrastructure at Jericho Beach. 
So everything has to be brought in for that event. And that, you know, that's a, a very high cost for us. There are other high costs as well, but um, it's just become much more expensive uh, to do this. Uh, it's also uh, the, the environment has changed in the post-COVID environment in terms of suppliers now wanting to be paid up front. And so we don't have that cash flow uh, opportunity to you know wait until all of the ticket revenue comes in in order to pay our supplies. So things of that nature too. So it would have to be a very significant uh, annual uh, support for us to right. make this happen. It sounds like it would be a complete revamp of how the festival operates. That's correct. Yes. It, it just, it, it operated for a number of years, for decades, but I don't think in this new environment it's possible. Okay. So if the environment were to change, if there were all of those things to happen, is there possible to do a, a, a revamp? And I think I ask, I speak on behalf of a lot of people who think, you know, Vancouver can't afford to lose another great festival. I, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, I can assure you this was a very difficult decision for the board to make, and we struggled with it for a long time, and we discussed it quite uh, thoroughly. But uh, the reality is is that it's just too expensive to do these types of events now. And, um, you know, moving forward, uh, whether we could get the – you know, all of our office expenses covered or any of those things, it's just too hard to know. And um, one of the things that we wanted to do as a board, as a board, we have a responsibility to look after the financial um, affairs of the organization. And why we're recommending this step at this time is if we do this now, we will have sufficient funds in order to do an orderly wind-up. We'll be able to, uh, you know, settle all of our liabilities and be able to and on a clean note. And that way, if we do that, um, it can always be reborn if, if there's a group of people that come together that would like to try it again. But at least the, the festival as it is now will not have any lingering uh, debt claims or anything attached to it. So right. that's why we're recommending this at this time. Right. So there could be a rebirth, but you don't want to leave anything bad behind. That's right. Yeah. Mark, when did you get involved with the Folk Festival? Well, I've been on the board for two years. Uh, I've been in the role as the president for the last year. I started about a year ago as the president. Um, But I've been a long-term attendee of the festival and have loved every minute that I've been there. And um, as I said earlier, for the board, but for me personally also, this is a very hard decision to make because we do love the event and we think it it creates a, a... a great atmosphere and opportunity for artists to perform, but also people to celebrate music. You seem to embody a lot of folk festival fans, and that is they don't just go once, right? They go every year. There is that deep connection. That's correct, yes. Are you hearing from a lot of them? Yes, uh, we're hearing them. Most of the uh, responses that we've heard so far are people, of course, uh, very uh, shocked by the news, very saddened by the news. Uh, but a lot of people are understanding of the situation that we're in. Um, but you know, obviously nobody wants to see this event go away. But uh, as a board, we felt it was uh, our responsibility to take these steps in order to uh, wind up the society in an orderly fashion. So what you said there's a meeting coming up where this will be discussed. When does that happen? When is this next step? That's uh, February 1st. All right, so we'll see what happens on February 1st, I guess. Yeah, and we'll see what the members decide, yes. We will. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much.
And best of luck. That's Mark Zuberbuehler, who's the president of the Vancouver Folk Festival Board, talking about all the issues the Folk Festival has struggled with financially, organizationally, and now they are voting to wind up, essentially, at their next meeting on February the 1st, unless, like, you know, what deep-pocketed sponsor can be found, or maybe they shut it down in its form, recreate it in a different form that is better able to respond to kind of the realities of today. Can Vancouver really afford to lose Another great event, though. That's the thing. You may not have gone, but you know what? I didn't usually go, but I can recognize that, boy, what a great event that was. And people love it. They are devoted to it. And it just, it is a, a part of the fabric of the city. And the city needs events like that, right? Simi at cknw.com. If you think you'd like to see that saved or you think, what, what should we do in cases like this? It's just, we can't let another thing end in Vancouver. Simi at cknw.com if you want to weigh in or call or text our buzz line. This is Mornings with Simi. Several months ago, shocks went through the academic and political world when a CBC investigation uncovered really uncomfortable and shocking information about the background of Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafond, information that showed her background was not how she had described or how she had told stories about for years, allegations that she was not, in fact, Indigenous at all. Now, UBC, where she was employed as a professor in Indigenous law until last month, has been widely criticized for its lack of openness in dealing with the situation. And yesterday, months after this story came to light, apologized to faculty and staff for not doing enough. Thing is, other universities have gone through similar situations and allegations They've dealt with them in a much different manner, many of them in a more open and investigative manner. So why didn't UBC? Well, our next guest has worked in this area before and joins us now to talk about it. It's Jean Taillet, who's a Métis lawyer and expert in Indigenous rights law. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's nice to be here, Sydney. When you see what's going on here with the UBC situation, does part of you think, boy, it didn't have to be this way? Absolutely. Um, it's sort of shocking that an institution dedicated to learning um, didn't learn from a clear path that two other universities at least had already walked down and they just did the same thing again. So it was shocking. You also, I know you helped guide the University of Saskatchewan in a similar investigation. Is that right? Well, uh, yes, I did do an investigation for them, but I didn't help them guide their communications at the beginning. Um, I was engaged afterwards to do an investigation into Dr. Carrie Barassa, um, but she resigned towards the end of that investigation. And so then the university asked me to sort of lift up the report and not make it about her and just talk about generically, what is this issue? Who are these people? Where did they come from? Why are they doing this? And what are we supposed to do about it? So that's what the report ended up being. What did you find then? How does this happen? (laughs) You know, uh, besides needing a psychiatrist to try and figure out why these people do this, the easy answer is, is greed and opportunity. They see an opportunity that is available to them if they make a little tweak to their identity. And so that's what they do. And um, they get money, they get grants, they get, like we see with some of them, huge prestige for working in this field. Some of them are very good at what they do. I think there's no question that Mary Ellen is very, was a very, very good articulate uh, advocate 
for Indigenous people. The question is, does she have to do it in red face? And that's the, the whole point. So um, the, the fact is, the, these opportunities, I should, I should just clarify, are not coming around by the millions. There's not like thousands and thousands and thousands of these opportunities. They're very few and far in between for Indigenous people. The fact is, universities and other institutions, I might add that this whole um, reckoning with this uh, fight about Indigenous identity fraud is uh, waiting to blow up for the federal and provincial governments as well because they're in the same boat. What do you but, mean? Well, they are also, they've also been operating for the last 15 or so years on self-identification. That's the root of all this, is that all you had to do is tick off a box or say that you were Indigenous somewhere along the line and nobody ever checks. Now, we find out with Mary Ellen that university, this was a shocker to me with the Mary Ellen Trapelafond situation was I thought that the only thing the university didn't check was the Indigenous identity. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that they didn't also check your academic credentials or your claims of publications. I, never, I was sure they checked that. So it turned out to be wrong that they don't. It's just reputation. If you can build yourself a reputation, nobody scratches beneath the surface. And the, the, the fact that this all blew up um, as a result of Indigenous identity fraud. I mean, it's pretty clear to me there's probably people with academic credential fraud all across the country too. Okay, yeah, so that begs the question then, what should institutions and organizations be doing? Like, how do you kind of protect your organization from this? You check, don't rely on reputation and don't, um, don't, don't just accept what people say. You know, the universities learned the hard way, I'm sure, over a thousand years or so, that they had to invigilate exams because students cheat and they have to uh, peer review academic um, papers because professors will mince their research. So those things are set up as checks and balances to verify honesty. And clearly we need to check honesty with respect to credentials and we have to check honesty with respect to what people are saying about Indigenous identity. Indigenous identity is complicated to verify, but it's not impossible. The only thing people have to do is make a decision that they're going to check. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is just even send out a message that you will check. That will stop people right away. If they know that everything's going to be scrutinized, then they probably won't make the claim in the first place. Right. So we can do it. It's don't, just um, effort. I know it's also challenging. I think, don't you think there's also some fear in doing this, of putting a foot wrong, of, of questioning someone's, uh, you know, identity, it's, it, people feel bad about doing that. Um, sure they do. Um, but the reality is that it's, it's um, something we have to do. I mean, it's the same in, in some ways, I don't, I don't want to put these totally on the same basis, but um, an analogy is that this is a problem we all have to deal with. Now, the problem is that it's Indigenous people who are going to have to beef up their identity systems and make this all right. And it's not technically our problem because this is white people who are lying and cheating in order to do this. But it means we have to do it and the institutions have to do uh, work to stop this. It, so in a way, if you say, if you look at domestic violence, it's not enough to say it's a male problem of beating up their wives because women are being hurt. So you can't just put it on one side. You have to look at both sides and you have to dig into it. And those situations are the same. Those people's reputations are on the line. People are wary about 
wandering into that because it's it's uh, considered private. It's considered personal. And this is the same, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Advice. How could you give some advice then to institutions? How do you how do you set up a system like this then? Well, I gave a lot of advice to the University of Saskatchewan about setting, first thing, set up a policy that says that you will verify people and make it very clear on applications and in your hiring processes. But the biggest thing is education. We, the reason people can make, get away with these fake claims, and it is fraud, intentional deceit for a material benefit, that's fraud. It's a death by definition. So the way to understand that is to set up systems and policies that will check for people, make them people know in advance that they're going to be checked, remove people if they are uh, found to have been um, lying about who they are, because the basis of the university has to rest on integrity. And if people are lying in order to be professors. It calls into question research. It calls into question everything the university stands for. So they have to be rooted out and the university has to stand on truth as we all do. It's part of what we think is right in this world. The moral arc that Martin Luther King talks about has to be based on truth and honesty. Listen, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. You're very welcome. We appreciate that. Great conversation. That's Jean Taye, who's a Métis lawyer, an expert in Indigenous rights law, uh, helped out at the University of Saskatchewan with the Dr. Carrie Barassa case. She actually led that investigation into what happened there. Again, someone saying they had credentials that they did not have or a background that they did not have. Uh, surprised by what we see happening here with UBC, where they clammed up, they didn't say anything about the Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafon case. Now they are apologizing, saying we should have done more. Months, though, after the story initially broke with the investigation by the CBC on that.